Simo and Redman are the thong slappers. They're two blokes making lots of noise but getting nowhere fast. Good morning, folks, and welcome to episode two of the Thong Slappers. This is Simo, and I'm joined this morning by Redman. How you going, mate? All right? G'day, Simo. Going very good, buddy. Thank you very much. That's the go. Look, I made the point of saying good morning because when we're here about to kick off this podcast, I can actually hear all this wildlife in the background. So uh, we, I figured we might as well put a bit of a date stamp on it. Now, mate, um, first of all, look, I'm really stoked to be doing this second episode. Uh, we've had some pretty positive response to the first episode, which was nice, especially because, you know, you and I understand and appreciate what sort of technological clusterfuck trying to get that first episode up was, especially for two very low-tech people like yourself and I, who probably aren't that adept to being in a high-tech world as um, Gus and Telford Street Machine, you know, very well put it. So, um, yeah, no, I'm really happy with it and I hope you are too. Well, I'd just like to welcome you back, actually, to Australia's longest-running dedicated streetcar podcast. Well, that's true. It may only be episode one or <laughs> on to episode two, but you, you're right. But um, I guess since we spoke last time, or we did mention last time, that you actually had a birthday coming up. And um, I've got to say, I mean, for someone who's 45, you don't look it, mate. I'm just going to give you some kudos. Look, it's early. I'm probably a bit tired. I'm not hungover, but I may as well be because I'm just, you know, when you get older, you just wake up feeling hungover anyway. But, man, you've got like a full head of chiseled red hair. There's no grey there. You know, it's it's like it's, you're wearing a Lego Man helmet. It's that thick and chiseled. And how do you do it? Like, what's the secret? Like, I look every bit my age. It's the devil's work, actually, Simon. Because what it is, it's just like you'll, you'll have you'll, you'll have no you'll have no hair loss. That's what they all agree. They'll say you won't have any hair loss, but the fucking thing will be red your whole life. Oh, <laughs> so it's like you sort of yeah, okay. You, it's a trade-off between the two. No, yeah. It is. Can I just tell people that aren't? Well, we haven't got any vision on this podcast. Can I actually just tell people what you've worn into the studio this morning? I'm sorry to break it down, but. So Simon's got a pastely colour, would you call it? So a pastely colour hypo Oakley hyper colour nuclear protection T-shirt on, a set of gold wayfarers. I've never even seen gold wayfarers and some pastel <laughs> pants, mate. I didn't know it was dressing up. I feel like you know underdressed. I've just got jeans and a black T-shirt on. Oh, but um, you're making me underdressed. That's just my pajamas. Don't worry. So <laughs> I wear that all the time. Yeah. Oh, you, you blindsided me on that one. Hey, listen, mate, what exactly did you get up to for your birthday? I know you headed overseas and sort of made a bit of a go of it. So what did you actually get up to? If you want to just fill us in. Oh, actually, yeah. We uh, went to Singapore for a bit of a look around over there for a, a quick four-day flying visit. But uh, actually, funny story. Oh, it's not that funny. But you know how drama follows me. I'm always saying to you that drama manages to find me. I think the red hair is like a – it's like a beacon. It should be a warning to people, but it's not. It's, uh, <laughs> oh, it early. is to me. <laughs> We decided to fly overnight. We didn't have much time, so we thought we'd leave uh, Brisbane Airport around midnight. That was the flight, so yeah. we get to uh, we check in, get plenty of time. So I decided the most important thing with you all know this is with the international flights prep. You have to prepare yourself. Yeah, sure. So once uh, we got settled in, I went and prepared myself at the at the bar there. Nine dollars ninety for a stubby of VB at the bar. <laughs> oh God, I know. <laughs> I only had six. I actually tried to make a joke with the, the young uh, waitress or barmaid. Said, oh, can I can I lay by that? She says, oh, I don't know. I have to text my supervisor. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. 
sitting. So we get onto the flight, all happy. Everybody's ready to go. We get to, an overnight flight's quite good. There's plenty of room. Off we take. And so they started bringing around, you know, I'd had six deep by inside the concourse by the time we left. So yeah, yeah. Take yeah. off. Yeah, I, was, I was already pretty, pretty happy about the whole flight. They'd begin the service and they come down and didn't feel like I needed to eat. So the, no, I didn't want the meal. So I started, I got two beers, total one was for the wife, but it was for me. So I drank both. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely segued. Yep. Yeah, I can't, <laughs> can't quite eat any of that uh, the airline food, but it was, it was a decent flight. So then probably 20 minutes into the flight, everybody set up. Service has been. I've got my beers. Wife's kind of starting to set up her video or whatever, you know, the screen that you watch. And a young, another young waitress, like part of the cabin crew, she comes down and I'm half, half lit. She reaches in and she says, oh, excuse me, sir, would you like headphones? So quick as a, quick as a flash, I just say, how did you know my name was Phones? Oh, my God. I know. It's See, just, you're, you're the only person who could get away with that. Like if I tried to do that. It'd be all over the news. They'd be landing the flight. I'd be arrested. You'd see me in cuffs and all the rest of it being taken away. But you just well, have the personality to pull that sort of crap off. Well, it didn't exactly pay her like that. She's just as quick as a wink. She's backhanded. Like, just slapped my shoulder, like, backhanded me. And my wife has done it from the other side as well because she's heard all this. Understandably. Yeah. And I'm like, oh. But then the wife kind of, did she just hit you? The wife. I said, oh, she didn't hit me. It was just like a bit of a backhander. The wife slammed forward and said to her, did you just hit him? So the young, she must have been about 20 or whatever, she's just a bit frustrated, a big tear just rolls straight down her cheek. And she goes up off the door and just up the hallway, disappeared. And I'm like, oh, well, this is situation normal. Here we go, you know, 27 yeah. minutes and you know, we're into the drama. So I'll go back to my beer because I already had a beer there for me. The wife yeah. goes back to the video. 90 seconds later, someone comes back down. This is a lady more my age, maybe five years older than me. Yeah. She's English. She's English. So, excuse me, mate. Do you think you know you could come down here and have a yarn to us? <laughs> Seriously, let's say you national flight, and I'm like, oh, oh yeah, right. My wife says, oh, you better go. I said, walking down there, I'm going to get fucking handcuffed and put in stuffed into the luggage here, definitely. Yeah. So, in a national flight, go up there with her, and she just says, oh, it's, Amy's just a bit upset. You know, did she actually? hit you just out of reaction. And I'm like, no, not at all. No, no, we're just having a bit of a lighthearted joke. No, I don't, not at all. So she, I don't know, she's kind of relieved, I guess. Yeah. Starts, and she's thinking, oh, well, this guy's not a jerk or there's no drama. She's oh, okay, mate. Well, you know, okay, so thanks for sorting that out for us. So I head back to my seat. And honestly, I don't know what their plan was, but from then on, Simon Major, they bought me drinks every minute and a half. I said my superpower is drinking. I, I I can fucking drink. So my my power is superpower is drinking. And they must have figured, oh well, we'll get this guy shit faced at least. And if, if he you know does try to say he was hit or was assaulted, he, yeah. he nobody, nobody will talk to him because he'll be legless. Yeah. Look, I think to me it just shows that even in this day and age where everything's getting really complicated, there still is people are still human and you can have a bit of a joke and it's kind of seen that way. You know, just everyone can be a bit casual and be a bit fun. But I've got to say, I kept getting text messages from you and there was these photos. At first there's like a photo of you standing on the head of some tiger and I'm like, oh, my God. Like I'm thinking, what are the people around you saying? Like a statue, of course, not a real one. And the other one was... There's like a photo of you next to a stormtrooper. Is it like kind of like a? Is it like a Disneyland or something? There, what's the go there? Yeah, you it was a like, Universal Studios over oh, there. Of course, and you were like cupping the balls of the stormtrooper. <laughs> I'm thinking, man, I hope that's like just. Uh, I hope it's a statue as well. That was pretty funny, but actually, um, probably the thing that was 
a classic was I was actually in a meeting for work and it was pretty important. Like it was a pretty serious kind of subject matter. And I was, you know, not really paying attention, starting to drift off. And I had my phone like down on the chair next to me and I'd just taken a big swig of Coke. And one of your messages came in and I sort of just did the sly, you know, with my left hand, like opened the phone and just sort of glanced down. And here's this photo, this photo of Redmond. He's sitting in a bar and I, I, he looks like some sort, if he'd, put, if he'd been in a safari suit, like a white safari suit, he would have looked like some jaded, you know, Western writer who was in Singapore doing something or other. And he's there with this cocktail, this look on his face. He's got like a Singapore sling or whatever it was. You kind of look was. like... You kind of look like Peter Ustinov as if you just solved some murder on the Orient Express and you were just taking some time out to, you know, ponder your future and you had this look on your face. The problem was I've seen this photo and I've just, like I said, taken a big swig of Coke and I've burst out laughing in this really serious meeting and there's like, you know, when Coke comes out your nose and starts to burn all your sinuses and stuff and my boss is just looking at me like, oh, Jesus, so I'm like the youngest guy at my work. Even at 45, I'm the youngest bloke there and just shaking his head like, what are you doing now? You know, so when you said you were experience. when you said you were bored in that meeting, was that at the forty-five second mark or the the fifty second mark? <laughs> I, I think it was. At, I, I think it was at the point when the boss said we need to have a team meeting, and here we go. So anyway, hey, um, <laughs> just one one funny thing. I'll, I'll just finish off with that because when we got to that Singapore Zoo and I was standing on the head of that polar bear, mm. how they come about is we're all you line up, you get your photo taken. There. It takes about the line moves fairly fast to be no more than. 90 seconds, two minutes that you're in line for it to happen. Yeah. So the wife, wife's a tourist. She likes to have the phone or uh, the camera around her neck and we go to the gift shops and all that. And mm. anyway, so there's probably around 30 people in front of us to get their photo taken at that uh, polar bear statue. And it's got Singapore Zoo and yeah, set up sure. very, very well. You could put three children on it and take a photo. They're like, they're, on the, like they're riding a horse and you can give it a cuddle. It's set up. So whoever's yeah. designed, look, we need to have it so people can have their photograph taken on it. Finally, we get to, actually, I pulled a duck out of a feather, but that's a different story. But <laughs> it's, um, anything was so loud, the whole zoo looked at me. But anyway, we're in line. When we walk up, the people, I just actually meant to cuddle it and sit on it. When the wife goes, you go first of all, just walk up the back of the bear, just completely walked on the back and stood on its head. And the very polite people, the Asian people, you could just hear across, there's probably about a crowd of 60 people waiting. You could just hear nearly a collective, oh, so the whole little crowd's caught again, and then the wife just rolling her eyes. She goes, I'll take the photo. So I'm standing on the bear's head and just so arms out like in a crucifix kind of thing. So the wife takes the photo, and then it just started like a little little ripple in the crowd. There's a couple of little giggles, a bit of a giggle, and then the whole 60 or 70 people giggle and start taking photos because this white guy, was just six-foot white guy, just walked up on the top of this bear. So I do the most amazing big bow <laughs> come down and the wife's just walking away. She's like, again. I should be used to you anyway, let's let's face it. But that's a legit photo, and I'll definitely get you to um, post that on Instagram and for our page at the Thong Slappers or the Thong Slappers on Instagram if you're an Instagrammable top person. Mate, a little bit of – I hate to use this word because this is like, you know, you said about you using bucket list. I'm about to do the same thing, a quick bit of housekeeping. Now, we had some feedback after episode one. And it's not just from people we know. So that was a good thing too. But um, a couple of things, Gary Johnston, he said, mate, guys, just listen to episode one. Absolutely loved it. Well done, boys. So thanks for that, Gary. And he's actually, looks like he's got a couple of cool HJ era Holdens. So a you Sounds event. like he was pissed. <laughs> no. So uh, it's, it's, it's good to, it's nice to receive that feedback. Uh, also, 
Uh, Travis, a, a young guy, actually, no, he's Gen Y. He made a pretty interesting comment. This is something I hadn't really factored in that I thought we might need to smooth over. He said, hey, you know, I kind of enjoyed it. Obviously, you know, you guys were a bit rough here and there with the um, editing side, and that's fair enough. Like, we aren't professionals. We don't claim to be, and we'll something we look to improve as time goes on. But he said, could you guys have chosen a worse-sounding V8 as part of your, like, your intro? And I kind of looked at him and I the said, thong slapper. Yeah, it's supposed to be mine. I said, that's like a thong slapper. And he goes, what's that? And so I thought, for probably the benefit of a couple, maybe younger people or people that don't realize, like a thong slapper is a nickname for a Holden powered V8, normally a 253. So that actual soundbite is literally like an HJ sedan with a 253 stock standard twin two inch system with no balance pipe. And that's kind of where the thong slapper thing came from. So that actual intro is supposed to sound like a terrible V8 because we are the thong slappers. So I hope that clears it up for anyone who may not have known. Uh, but anyway, mate, kicking off, we are actually supposed to talk about cars and that's sort of something we both love. And, and as we spoke about last episode, the plan is to talk about 1986 this episode. And it's funny enough, looking back at 86, as I, as I mentioned last uh, in episode one, we were both 13, so starting high school. And it's funny, whenever I think about 1986 and I think about high school especially, I clearly remember the first day of high school for me in 1986 was January 28th. And that was the day that the Space Shuttle blew up, the Space Shuttle Challenger. Do you remember that? I do, actually. Yeah, I, I can't relate it to the – I don't remember the day that it actually happened, but you're right, it, uh, it was that day. And yeah, terrible. it was, it was. And I, I just I just clearly remember waking up that morning. You know, you got the nerves. Of, this is, of course, in Brisbane, like grade eight back then was the first day of high school. And uh, not grade seven like it is now to align with other states. But, yeah, it was actually um, the space shuttle blew up then. And Bob Hawke, he was Prime Minister of Australia at the time. He was kind of coming towards the end of his run as Prime Minister of Australia. And uh, he'd had a pretty stellar. And it's funny how in recent years his popularity has just come back as, you know, from being such that larrikin and his famous 983 comments after we won the America's Cup. You know, like he really endeared himself with with most Australians, I think, too. And probably um, the the last politician could actually, and it used to happen. The journalists, I've spoke to journalists on this, that could drink with a politician. I don't mean get drunk and the jingoistic side of it. I mean they actually would drink maybe at the same pub and get that side of the journalism. It was a, a proper a side of it. There was no Pavarotti or whatever. They didn't have to alter who they were. They were yeah. judged basically on their policy and the way that they. You could, you know, be a bit different. It didn't really matter. It was your policy they were really hunting. You didn't have to have polls and you didn't have to. But I, I've definitely spoke to a journalist on this and, and he said, yeah, it's it's a celebrity game now. Yeah. With, and it, it, Sorry, keep going, mate. With your first day at school, did you get, first day of high school, did you get dumped in at Prickles? Was that an initiation that you guys had? <laughs> no. No. I was, I, I guess I was fairly lucky because I've got an older sister and um, being that fact, you know, she... I obviously knew a lot of her friends and I had friends who I guess through uh, primary school who were above me who were obviously at high school already. So I was kind of lucky that I knew a few people in the older years. And, mate, I had a pretty casual run through school. I was lucky. Like, I wasn't one of the cool kids, but I wasn't one of the nerds either. I was kind of somewhere in the middle. And, um, yeah, no, I remember grade eight was was pretty easy going, luckily, which is good. So I guess I couldn't get... It was back in the days where you couldn't get bullied 24-7 on social media, so it was all pretty good. How did you go, mate? Where did you go to high school anyway? Uh, so I went to one school from kindergarten to year 10, Portland Central School, actually, 2847. But I've got an older brother <laughs> and sister, so my older brother happily uh, was the, 
the school bully in a good way before it was, you know, before it was, well, you know, just he was actually the guy that would give you Chinese burn and six of your mates the Chinese burn. He's always a bit bit of a bigger guy. Yeah, but sure. But me and my cousin just decided we got to school and we used to get dumped in the prickles. All the boys would get dumped in the prickles and all the girls would get their head flushed in the dunny. So mm. me and my cousin had these strategies and stuff. And so when we were off to school at 8 o'clock, we just walked up to my brother. We knew him. We just walked up and he just <laughs> heads down, threw us both in the prickles and that was that was it. Yeah. It was done. <laughs> Yeah, oh, we'll just get over done with the one one foul one foul sweep, I suppose. Um, TV wise, just thinking back to '86, and like I say, you even said this was 1973. Stuff you look up, it's just amazing. You know, Alf. Do you remember Alf, the TV show that started in 1986? Gordon Shumway, and I still love that show to this day. Like, if you haven't watched it, do yourself a favor. It is actually a really funny show. Yo, Willie can watch it. Yep, I can still watch it now. And it's actually a great show. So um, did you used to watch ALF as well or anything uh, else in particular? I did used to watch ALF and it's, it's funny that you say, oh, yeah, I can still watch it now. It's because what you find funny, a 13-year-old boy goes, a 13-year-old boy finds funny. Now, I'm in that same boat as well. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's probably just the reality of it for us both, isn't it? And, it is. You know, Neighbours, which of course still runs nowadays, which I know you love, Redmond, I know you're right <laughs> into it. That actually got axed off Channel 7 and Network, Network 10 bought it. I don't know what it was actually called. Then we in Brisbane, we had like TVO and Channel O and then Channel 10. So whatever that subsidiary was at the time, they actually bought the rights to Neighbours from Grundy's and, and started recording that. How, how, how bad would Channel 7 feel axing Neighbours when you consider that it's still going, you know, more than 30 years later and it's something that they considered was shite, so they've dumped the show? And Channel 10 have picked it up and the, and the show's still popular. They'd be feeling like, you know, that probably was one of their best decisions, wouldn't they? Really? And Nabe's episode 3047, rumoured to be 25 seconds in the writing. Touche on the Neighbours gig. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. And movie-wise, of course, one of my favourites and probably a lot of favourites for anyone is Crocodile Dundee. That just, of course, put Australia on the map again, I suppose, and kicked off a lot of the the love for Australia, especially in America in the 80s. And um, that was a great film too. I remember I actually saw that at the movies, I think, when that came out. So I don't know. Uh, I think I must have probably just gone there with some mates or whatever in, in grade eight. You know, that was like a big thing to do was go to the movies. But, yeah, Crocodile Dundee and also The Fly with Jeff Goldblum. Do you remember The Fly? I do. It was disgusting. Yeah, I don't know. I still to this day don't really think much of it. Like it was uh, obviously really popular and I did see it, but it just, I don't know, it just does nothing for me. But then again, Malcolm, that Australian movie with Colin Friels, that was another 1986 film. It's a great film, yeah. It is a great, great We actually film. watched it a couple of weeks ago, again, for the first time in years. And it's, it's actually still a great show, like a great movie to watch. And John Hargraves, who in that movie, he plays the criminal, the guy who's just got out of jail. Mate, his, his character in that movie is freaking hilarious. And it's worth watching just for him. But no, that's definitely one of those Australian movies that I put on a massive pedestal because it's I'd have um, to give it a, a rerun. Story. I'd have I to give it a rerun. But I remember the fly. I remember actually what I mean by disgusting. It was just a bit gut-wrenching. It was like as sticky, <laughs> so sticky as a teenage honeymoon. I remember there was some scene where the... <laughs> There's some embryonic fluid or something. It was just, <laughs> as a kid, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go and play with my uh, toys. <laughs> Top, and, Gun, um, Top, Top Gun came out in 1986. Oh, really? Was it as well? Uh, it's got the my favourite part of the GPZ 900R, I think it is. The bike, isn't it? Oh, when he is does it, that. 86 is Top Gun, isn't it, Simon? I'm pretty sure, yeah. yeah. You're so, telling yeah. the story here, mate. 
I'm making it up as I go. <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually think you're pretty much on the money. It definitely was around that time, so it could be. Sure. One of the great things with that film is uh, when he is riding that GPZ with no helmet, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm a young, impressionable kid on a BMX and I you know, wanted to, to ride a road bike. I work a permanent afternoon shift now, so when I leave work, it's normally around midnight. Lately, I've been riding, well, not late yet, lately, but a few times as I come through the back of the suburbs instead of coming home over the bypass. I take my helmet off and just strap it to the rack on the side of the bike, my uh, Suzuki, and I just ride through the suburbs with no helmet. It does remind me every time of Top Gun, but it is a really nice and different sensation for a bike rider who's always worn a helmet. I don't know why suddenly I'm just kind of cruising through the back of the suburbs, but it's definitely... Probably a death wish, maybe. Uh, I I think I'm saving a a $75 helmet from getting scratched from a $10 head. (laughs) Hey, I've got to ask, though, when you actually do do that, what song do you have going through your mind? Is it Take My Breath Away or is it Danger Zone? You know that. It's Danger Zone. I'll always figure if this oh, podcast, if I, I was really doing this podcast, <laughs> I can afford to put myself through truck driver school. I, I actually thought that um, I was actually leaning towards Take My Breath Away. I'm sorry. I really thought you were going to tell me that. I'm, I'm surprised and, and kind of relieved at the same time. That's the case. But, you know, music-wise, I remember, mainly because I had an older, a mate's older brother went to the concert, was um, Die Straits Brothers in Arms. They did a huge Australian tour in 86. And um, at that stage too, it was the biggest music show that had ever been played in Tasmania, was that, was Die Straits. So, yeah, and that was part of that tour as well. What kind of were you into music-wise back then? Uh, music-wise, Ralph Harris. <laughs> <laughs> Kidding, bad joke. But um, I, when I looked at music in 1986, I had a look Metallica's Master of Puppets, great album. It's got like Battery, Sanitarium, a lot of their really big songs, and it is a great, great uh, album. ACDC released Who Made Who, which actually put me on a bit of a, I thought, oh, well, I wonder what ACDC were doing in comparison to Metallica. I mean, ACDC, hardest rock band ever in the world. Metallica, one at this stage, Metallica were definitely one of the best uh, metal bands in the world. They probably still are. So I thought I'd have a look at the lyrics. Yeah, so, yeah. I had a Metallica song. They've got Master of Puppets, that actual song. And so this is the, the mindset of the teenage heavy metal band in America. Well, this is definitely the lyrics he's listening to, this guy. So, the, you know, the lyrics are pretty deep and heavy and uh, cerebral. Yeah. Master, masters of Puppets, I'm pulling your string, twisting your mind and smashing your dreams. So, I mean, that's the American school kids were going to school with that pretty fresh in their frontal lobe. And so I compared that to ACDC's uh, song on their album, Sink the Pink. And the lyric for Sink the Pink is, Sink the Pink, it's all old-fashioned. Drink the drink, it's an old-fashioned. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, that's, that's straight away. That's Australia versus US in lots of ways, isn't it? That's a, uh, ACDC's hard-hitting social, you know, um, yeah. Yeah, commentary. Advice. And really actually, advice. It's a great drink, too. Sink the Pink's great too. But the, the old, it says the last line, drink to drink, it's old-fashioned. That's actually a, uh, I think it's bourbon with bitters and cubes and sugar and soda. It's actually a really nice drink, old-fashioned. It's a, it's a great drink. I can't say I've tried that, but I might have to put oh. it on my, on my bucket list for you. What do you think? <laughs> would you like me to drink one for you and let you know how it went? You probably would at this time in the morning too. Hey, um, Definitely. It's funny, with uh, Master of Puppets, have you seen the movie Old School? Jack Black? No, no, that's... um. Oh, shit, maybe I've got the main role. No, old school. Well, old school uncut is kind of always how it's listed. It's um, got a lot of guys you'd know. It's got, like, Will Ferrell's in it. Um, it's got that whole gang of people that always seem to do movies together, uh, whose names escape me at the moment. But there's a scene in that movie where they're actually kind of kidnapping people to form part of this new, like, a, you know, like a Delta Lambda house that they need to do for their university. 
and they cruise around this black Dodge van with master puppets blaring. They've got like stockings on their heads and they grab this guy and throw him in this Dodge van and just blaze the tires on these things. It's got like a huge <laughs> set of Craig RSSs and they blaze the tires on this black Dodge van to that song. It's just, it's a great scene. You have to. You have to check oh, well, it. I'll send it to you on YouTube. Right, sure I you just wrote it on my list anyway. I just put it. Down. I was thinking. I've seen one called Old School. I think it had Rock Hayes Freddy and Jimmy Jensen in it. That might not be the same film. <laughs> Probably not. I'd say not. But uh, as far as like music goes, to me, I was pretty much just into Australian stuff. And I don't know why. Like you're probably going to punch me next time you see me. But I was actually a real fan. Like, I love Mental as anything. I was right into their stuff. They're and, good. Um, yeah, I always enjoy. And and Daddy Cool as well. I just Sort of all through my childhood and into teens, I just love their music, like that sort of Australian music and, you know, the things for, I guess, taste change. But even still now, I enjoy listening to their stuff, both Mental as Anything and Daddy Cool. And, yeah, and Martin, no, Martin Plaza, is that? Yeah, he was one of the guys from Mentals, yeah. That's, yeah. That's it. But they formed in Sydney because that's a cool name, but that's obviously a stage name, isn't it? I think it is, yeah. yeah. His, his brother was actually, is in the band as well. Dalty, okay. I think was his surname. I just can't remember his first name. I probably should research this sort of stuff before we talk about it so I can actually prompt myself to know what we're talking about. But I guess but for 86, what were you doing probably more so bike-wise than car-wise in 86? I probably would have had it. I definitely had my dragster that's in the lounge room right there now so that I'm sitting looking at. I probably had, uh, sorry, I probably had it at that time. But 1986 at school was when I was first. I didn't invent, but I kind of started to really the stiffy pants. I don't know if I want to know about this. <laughs> you know when you sit down with pants, particularly school shorts or pants, yeah, you can yep. pull the centre up and you can actually, and then you like say to your mates that are sitting, hey, look, I've got stiffy pants, I've got stiffy pants. Did you ever do yeah, that? You went, to, you went to a, no, you went to a far different school to me. No. You never do. I, I still today, anybody who's any of our friends that are still actually listening to this will say, but I still do stiffy pants now in meetings. I'll go into like a, pre, a pre-start or a safety meeting and I sit back a bit and you just pull, you pull the sound of your pants up and it looks like a stiffy pants, but you stick to the subject. You're like, oh, you know, we talk about some componentry change out or are we keeping our safety focus? And my friends like Dookie or somebody will be in there and I'll just be like pointing to my stiffy pants. You should have got to give it a try in an important meeting. Well, I mean, as it is, I'm already getting in trouble for laughing. So I, I guess there's no point me making any worse. I probably can't make any worse. I might give that a go next time. It's, it's you know what? Up. Please yep. don't don't post a photo of that on our Instagram and or Facebook pages. Okay. I'll, I'll just That's one of the photos I'll just send through to you at like three in the morning. My phone will be on silent, I promise you. I want to be on uh, blind. <laughs> Actually, no visual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, um, speaking 86 to talking about like obviously cars which we better start talking about seeing this is a car based podcast Bathurst 1986 Alan Grice Gricey he won Chickadee Chickadee. yeah that's right the road roadways one that was a VK still I think by that stage I did look at it the other day but I forgot but um you know him and Graham Bailey like Graham Bailey who actually was the guy who owned Chickadee like the sponsor like the, the chicken farm he was a really accomplished racer in his own right as well like what a pairing though for and obviously the fact that he was teamed up on the winning car, he obviously knew how to steer. And, you know, like that was such a great thing to see. Like I, Grice is one of my favourite drivers you know, sort of of all time. I kind of always followed his career and those guys did so well. And, I mean, really, when you look at who else was kind of in the running, I think, was it Brocky? He came in second, I think. Was it a VK? He hadn't switched to VL by that stage, had he? Was he still in a VK? No, I think Brocky, yeah, Brocky was in a VK. He came Fifth, and you wouldn't believe who was teamed up with Alan Moffat. Oh, really? Yeah, 
they drove okay. together. Brocky gave him a life. I to come back and, and and have a steer. You know what happened to the car, the Brock VK. Is that the year that it was um, Moffat? Did he stack it or something yeah, happened? Moffat, there was some drama. Moffat put it right into the wall in practice. I'm sure he put it into the wall in practice and, and bend yeah. it absolutely. Interesting how they fixed it. Bathurst Holden threw open the workshop for him. So come on, guys, bring you guys down and we'll get this thing happening. But they were yeah. sponsored by an airline at the time. Just at the moment, I can't remember who it was. They flew him up some stuff for the first class, just booked in some seats, you know, maybe put a couple of sway bars on the seat and some rims and bits. I can't remember what it was. They flew him. Bathurst Holden opened up and let him uh, strip a VK that was on the workshop floor. That must have been for some of the, the basic body stuff. When it was yeah. finished, when it was finished, we didn't have a tilt chair and Brocky drove it back to the track from Bathurst. Like from Bathurst Hold up to the track. <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah, Imagine seven. being a kid or even an adult on the side of the road and seeing that thing tear pasture. How cool is that? And they finished uh, fifth, I think. They did. It's actually, unfortunately, a death. I mean, that's not a nice thing. It was a death of the race that year. I think it was Michael Bergman. That's always yeah. a horrible thing. But uh, Were you actually living in Bathurst at that time? I grew up, yeah, well, yeah, when I say Bathurst, we live 41Ks from Bathurst, and mum still lives there. So, so yeah. did you actually, did you go to Bathurst actually in, like, the race every year? Yeah, we had Bathurst a lot of times when we were kids. I think when you're a kid, it was a lot simpler. It's just walk in. If you're a kid under a certain height, you used to walk in, stroll, okay, just sure. let you watch it. And there's not as much on-track stuff as there was a PA announcer, but once you go up the back, you, you couldn't hear him sort of thing. There's a yeah, very good yeah. motocross track behind Bathurst and the Light Car Club as well. It, Bathurst used to be, Bathurst motocross track used to be on the backside of Mount Panorama, so it obviously had a couple of good uphill straights as well. as It, it wasn't mm. a national track. It was a local local track, but I suppose there'd be a lot of motocross riders that can quite rightly say they raced at Bathurst. Well, I guess so, yeah. You talk some, about it that way. Some Dick finished fourth, I think, in that race in 86. I think, what was his name? Dick Johnson. Yeah, Mustang. it's funny, actually. Dick Johnson, yeah, he was in that Mustang, that five-litre Mustang. Yeah. That was, um, I don't know, is that is that like a, I can't remember if they call those things Fox bodies or whatever, but yeah, he was in the, the green stuff Mustang. Funnily enough, you know, like I was looking at some other stuff. We talked about 1973 um, last episode and just doing some stuff for this. I was having a bit of a look at 1973. 1973 we're going, you're regressing again. Oh, yeah, look, I, I just got curious, you know. Like you start you start Googling stuff and you just fall into this trap where you go to Google something for five minutes. Like you might be Googling, you know, like how to boil an egg. And then, you know, three hours later, you've come out and you can recite, you know, every poem that, that was ever written in Australia. But it's more the point that, like, 73 was actually Dick Johnson's first Bathurst race in LJ Tirana. So he'd been going for a few years by 86. You know, he was in his 13th, 13th Bathurst start. So, yeah, look, not not trying to go back and talk about stuff we've already covered. But And I probably should have researched that before we did that episode, not since. But it's sort of one of those things where it's, it's interesting to, to get that, see that information, especially how it plays out, you know, years later as well. But 86-wise, it's a massive Massive year for Australian street machining too. I guess the biggest standout to me for 1986 was when we saw that transition. Cars went from being, you know, like say in the old days, if you wanted to put massive tyres on the car, say if you're going to fit big big wheels, you flared the guards, like all the the width went outwards, and you'd, you know, it was common to see cars which had flared guards front and rear, especially rear. Um, what are you it's, doing? What are you doing? You're blowing your nose or something? No, is it no nothing at all? Oh, okay. It just must have been the wildlife. Sorry. Um, anyway, so, you, you know, you'd, you'd flare the guards and 86 was the transition where sort of flares went by the wayside and people started to tub stuff more, like it all went inwards, leaving the outer guards fairly, apart from maybe, you know, lengthening the guards for the 
big diameter stuff. And it's interesting, like, do you remember um, Kevin Monk had that Daytona? You know, that Dodge Daytona and was hugely jacked. It was in Running on Empty. It has a bit of a cameo on that. And yeah, it was, car, yep. yeah, so the Daytonas, of course, they're a Dodge Charger, but they've got the big wing on the back and the nose cone on the front. He has some humongous wheels under the back of that, like 1510s or 1512s. So to get around it, he put those black rubber flexi flare, uh, flares on it. Seriously, like you see on four beats. That was kind of accepted. Like Doug Hawkins, another guy, he had that yellow Mustang. I think it's about a 69 or a set, maybe it's a 70 Mustang fastback. It had a injected 454 in it. It was yellow. Do you remember that car? It had a wing on it as well. It was a fat he, um, car, I remember. It was a great car. And he too, he put flexi flares on the back of that thing. So it was kind of the done deal. If you wanted to put massive tires on the back, everything stayed the same as far as tubs and diff went, and it all went outwards and was covered by flares. But, of course, they went to tubbing. And I'll oh, just quickly on that Doug Hawkins Monaro. Oh, not Monaro, Mustang. I actually, a few years ago, met the guy who now owns that car, and I nearly, for some stupid reason, I don't know why I didn't, I was actually buying some tires with this guy, and he had the rims off that, that car, the original rims. I think the fronts were like 14 eights, kind of like a hurricane wheel, kind of similar yeah, to what the Jukes uh, Hazard had, like the Vectors. It was 14 by 8s, I think, on the front, and the rears were 15 10s, and I could have bought them, and I didn't because I'm an idiot, and I've regretted it ever since, but they obviously did end up selling. But he actually re- – it was a genuine Mac 1 Mustang, and, of course, he undid all that cool stuff, and he returned it to a stock standard, fully restored – Mac one Mustang. So kind of devastating, but yeah, exactly. Anyway, I think so. What I'm getting to the eighty-six. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yep. I was just gonna say, like, so nine eighty-six, really to me, as far as the car scene goes, that's when we started seeing a lot of tubbed cars hit the scene and probably the cars that really made the greatest impact with that were a lot of Queensland stuff. You had Rob Boatham's LX Tirana or Beachant, his LX Tirana that um a ready maroon one and you also had of course wayne pagel's gas 69 ht monaro which is one of my all-time favorite cars you know it's the 986 street machine nationals now not to be confused of course with the summer nats but the actual street machine nationals were held at easter in canberra and those cars just cleaned up and it was kind of i guess part of a, a, a bigger queensland onslaught because you also had in the mix there you had greg carlson with his blown silly wb ute do you remember that? It was that a black is, yeah. WB with a chopped roof. Do you remember that car? Yeah, it is stinking hot car. That is excellent. Mate, mate, isn't it what? And I can always remember from the 1984 Street Machine Nationals, there was there was photos of that kind of when it was in the build when he was sort of first into it. And it was it was chopped already and it was black and it had like um the WB Statesman front. The the, the nose comb was like fully chromed or the front the front pan was fully chromed, like it had that feature on it. I think I remember just seeing that car thinking, man, something cool is going along here. At that stage, it had um, dragway five spokes and it had, you know, wheelie bars and stuff like that. But he bought that back in 86 and had a set of welds on it and it was obviously fully painted and detailed inside and out with a blown injected small block, I think. That was actually the motor that went later into his second incarnation of Blonde Silly, the VK Calais. Do you remember that? The yeah, silver one of my one. favourite VKs of all time. That car is so correct. Definitely. And also, too, I mean, you know, um, Rob Beecham, he did the same. He built that purple yep. BL Calais that debuted at the same time. So, But as I, I guess they may be cars people are more familiar with, but that original, those, the Tirana, the HT Monaro, and that WB Ute are the standouts for me from, from that, actually from that year, that year of cars. And 
The June 1986 issue of Street Machine was just something that my mates and I just poured over at school. Good, you know, and like I said, the um, Gas 69, and I've spoken to Wayne Pagel a few times. I actually interviewed him for uh, the Street Machine. And, you know, really nice guy, car guy to the core. He's still mixed up these days with the Australian Street Machine Federation, does a lot of judging here, especially in, like, in Queensland. And um, he, you know, he just talking to him about that, and I said to him, mate, do you get sick of people like me just asking you about Gas 69? And, you know, look, and appreciating the fact that he, in that time since, in the years since, has built a number of other cars that were probably finished better than Gas 69 were, that, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a great, he's got a great vision and a great eye for detail and it's very pedantic with what he does. And the thing is, so he's built probably, I guess, better quality cars since he did the Black Monaro. And I said, you know, does it, does it drive you crazy that people always talk about Gas 69 but not so much about the other ones? And he's like, you know, he just he's just cool about it. He said, look, that's – he goes, it's really humbling to me that that car and something I created had such a positive impact on people's lives. And it's true. It's, it's a good thing and it's something that we still talk about amongst friends till the cows come home. And um, it's the same too, of course, with um, Rob Beach and Celex Tirana. I, I know that Gas 69, Wayne was telling me that he actually sold the car as a roller and it was actually missing a number of panels and stuff he kept, but the main body with all the tin work and stuff was sold off. And he said it was, it was in a panel shop in Brisbane for a long time, but he said the car kind of just got pushed further and further out of the thing and ended up in the backyard and was eventually scrapped. So that was kind of a shame to see, but I know he is keen to build a Gas 69 Mark II or Part II, which would be very similar to the original car, but, of course, just probably with modern finishes now. But, of course, these days, trying to buy an HT Monaro, that's that's the difficult part. Like back then, he was saying he had an HT Monaro, he had that car, like Gas 69, but he also had an HT Monaro drag car. And same thing with, with Greg Carlson. Like he'd built a number of cars before he built the WB Ute. He was actually a panel van, like as in like Wayne was as well. They were both into the panel van scene. And Greg had actually owned a V8 EH panel van in the 80s, in the early 80s, and also built a really tough HJ panel van. And again, with all the flare guards and all the stuff that was hot back in those days. So these guys were, you know, experienced builders and seriously left a, a big mark on our, on our scene. And also, you know, sorry, just to finish off, I know I'm, I'm ranting on, but no, you've no, got me... I'm You've got me in that zone of just of, of of cars that I love. Rob Beecham, of course, in recent years built that Chevy Nova, and that thing, of course, is just a work of art as well. So it'll be interesting to see if in years' time people remember that Nova the way they remember his LX or the, the VL Calais. I think it's, but I guess in saying that as well, like a lot of things in your youth or things that inspire you, it's not just young people, of course, but older people back then. These cars were so cutting edge. And just such a standout. That's kind of what makes them memorable, I think, in a lot of ways. What do you think? I think it was a smaller scene back then, too. It was a bit more boutique. And some, some thoughts I've got around the flared guards moving on to the, through to the tubs. The flared guards, is that a mechanical thing? Is that because it was easier for home builders and for owners, or home car builders and owners, to flare the guards and put fat tires than it was to cut the diff and fit tubs? Is that part uh, of it? You know, it's a bit more of a yeah. cottage industry. And now, think, now you can get diffs cut very easily and you can get... Um, yeah, I think you're dead right, especially if you wanted a stronger diff. Like, say, the technology probably wasn't around, the components you probably wasn't around to build, say, a Borg Warner diff that could handle, like, a ten, you know, car cable running a 10 or whatever the case may be. And your buyers would be looking at things like, well, compact Fairlanes, they've got quite a narrow 9-inch, so we can get a strong diff in there, but we still want to run big tyres, so... And I guess plus two, it's just it's just the style of the time. 
that was just something people did was fit fat tyres front and rear, not just to the rear. And it, it kind of was a, I guess the, the, the style of car was changing to run that pro street, like the birth of pro street in Australia, where you had the cheese cutters on the front and you had the humongous rubber stuffed in under the back. And it's it's like we talked about last episode with the white XB. It's still a, it's still a, a style that people you know enjoy today, like the pro street styling. And that's kind of interesting. And Especially too, I think I'm probably being a bit, you know, state of origin Queenslander fan here, but it was pretty cool that some of the real cutting edge cars from that time came from Queensland. I'm proud of that fact. And the Super Street Machine Club, which was something that that um, Greg Carlson and Wayne Pag were a member of, they were a hard hitting club back in the day. Like they were the just the upper echelon of of what people, you know, aspire to do with cars. And the other cars that were in that club are also pretty cool. Um, a fellow by the name of Dennis, who actually used to live at the Gap, which is the suburb I grew up in, he was a member and he had this beautiful white EH panel van. And Dennis's cars are always, you know, tip top. He still builds cars now. He's got a, he's got a beautiful FJ sedan. He's probably leans more towards the hot rod scene these days. But um, also, too, another car that was a big part of my personal upbringing that was a member of Super Street Machines was uh, Louis Spelter had a red XB hardtop with a really like a really tough 351 and top loader and all that. And that was uh, called Helter Skelter. It was featured back in Street Machine 2 around that time. I'm not sure if you remember the car. Yeah, um, I definitely yeah. remember it. Yeah, and his dad or his family actually owned a takeaway shop near me. I can remember being there, you know, as an early teen with my dad and we'd just be waiting for whatever we we're getting cooked to be done. And Lou would rock up in this XB, you know, had a, had a cage in it and, and the factory sunroof and it sounded, this thing, just sounded cranky as it was an animal car. And it's funny in the years since I've actually become good mates with Lou and he's such a good guy and he just, he'd hop out of this car with this big buff of curly black hair. And whenever he'd take off in this thing, it was just, for a kid, it's just heaven, you know, to, to hear that and to actually have these cars that you see in magazines because you're at that age, you're not old enough to kind of get yourself around when you're 13 and 14 as far as it's not, you can't just jump in your car and drive to a car show. You know, it was always yeah, a bit of a mission. Definitely. Like I used to tie and say, going to the hot rod show, I'd tie it in as like a bit of a birthday present. My dad would take me along. But it was one of those things where to actually see cars you saw in magazines, to see them on the street, it was an incredible experience. Like definitely I found an incredible experience for me. Well, this, this scene in Bathurst at that time, and I've, I've spoke to you about this before, there was a six-cylinder, and that's why I'm still such a fan of six-cylinders. I was talking to young Matty Waters, 55, the other day, and saying there was so many six-cylinders around, there might have been one or two big dogs with a, with a V8. It's not many in the town I come from. It was just so many six-cylinders. Just one last thing on them flares. It has been interesting to watch the cars like Terminator and stuff go from there to go to Carlson's VK with them massive tubs in the back, the real Pro Street interior, the little seats, and even Pro Street today, they go out, it's it's a very, very good scene, and I like it. They can now hide the tubs. They put the tubs in the back, they put the, and they put a little custom seat around the back of it sort of thing so they can put people in the back. The evolution of Pro Street has is, is really come a long way. I, for my 86 Street Machine, I've got the April, May one. It's got the Terminator on the front cover. You remember that car? Mate. As soon as you just said Terminator before, I thought, you poor bastard, you just opened up the hugest can of worms. The Terminator would be one of my all-time favourite cars. And Same here. Mate, Mick Curran. Mick is actually still in the car scene nowadays. He's got a pretty cool Mustang, but that car is something that just, again, like everything else I talk about from 86 and being in high school, just, just blew us away. And the thing I love about that HQ, and ah, just frustratingly enough, you put a photo of the Terminator on social media nowadays, like such as Facebook, it was a tough 
badass cart, had a blown 308, uh, had 14 10s on the back, 14 8s the front flared guards. It had a, like a drop tank with LTD tail lights and wheelie bars on it. And people just bag the crap out of, oh, why'd you flare the guards? What a waste of a classic. And this Really? And they say that on yeah, the... They, you, you, I know you don't do social media, except now you, I've probably created a monster with you by putting on Instagram, but it's, it's amazing that the people... Why would you cut up and like? I think the LTD tail lights in an HQ rear bar. I think it's a fantastic modification. Like, <laughs> it's it's a, it's such an iconic car. And crazily enough, someone posted a photo from Unique Cars where it was for sale for like thirteen thousand dollars, which of course back wow. in seven eighty eight would have been huge dollars. You probably could have bought yourself a house. It was um it was an, a really tough thing. It says in the article I that I read it yesterday. He had twenty seven defects in the thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he left I'm actually quarters L34 308 heads, just all that, all that perfect stuff. Yeah, and the car just looks tough as like okay, an HQ GDS coupe, which is restored and has GDS wheels, they still look nice. Like, don't get me wrong, but there's so many around nowadays. If yeah. someone rocked up to a car show in the Terminator, I'd just I'd lose my lose a plot. And I, again, it's kind of one of those things where. I think um, you really need to appreciate that what our forefathers did as far as car modification goes, and that, that Terminator is definitely a tough car. I can think of a number of my friends. If I just say to them, Mick Curran, if I just if I walked up to them and just said, "Who's Mick Curran?" That's a he built the Terminator in nineteen eighty six. So guys have left this legacy, whether they realise it or not. Just these regular Joe blows, most of them, they've left a legacy that uh, they probably don't really appreciate how much of an impact they had on people's lives and. Interestingly, you made a really good point when we were chatting last about the process of reading a magazine. And I guess just to kind of nip this in the bud, like this particular thing we're talking about, it's really interesting that back then, you know, you sometimes, like, especially you'd wait two months, three months, say for custom vans and trucks was a, was a quarterly magazine. So they came in every three months. You might have to wait, you know, six weeks, two months, three months for a new issue of a magazine to hit the shelves. You had to make that last. It's not like nowadays where. Some poor bloke spends a day videoing an event, like say, you know, at Summonats, he might spend a day videoing burnouts or whatever. Then he spends another few days editing it all into something. Someone watches the three-minute video and it's just like, next. It's like they just, they don't, everything's such a throwaway. Whereas with a magazine, you'd read that three or four times like you were saying last time because that's all you had to keep you going. You'd just keep reading that magazine. It was what you needed to keep you going until the next issue, you know, came through. And I think that's why... By the end of it, you just knew the thing back to front, inside and out, because you had that weight between between issues actually being released. I said, tell something, a, a piece once, and I put, you know, the, the magazines back then were our super, you know, internet super information highway. <laughs> he wrote back, well, more like a, you know, a country lane, but it was definitely. Yeah, the, exactly. The 86 exactly. one, the, the Terminators, and Chick Henry as a contributor. Uh, yep. Phil, Phil Scott's the editor, and that's, it's funny, in one of the, in the front page, it says the technical wizards. They were Brian Woodward and Douglas Huntley. So what do you reckon they were doing in 86? Maybe the Xerox machine or the Polaroids? <laughs> probably. Probably. Or they could have been helping work on HQ for you. That was 1986 oh, as well. Speaking red HQ Monaros, that was the project. One of my favourite photos from that whole build-up was a photo of them. Uh, it was just, just thinking back to the magazine, they bought this HQ Monaro as like a one-owner bank manager car with low miles, and there's a photo of them smoking the tyre, like one tyre, driving it into the workshop to strip it down and, and turn it into HQ for you. So that's pretty cool as well. My favourite photo of that is, who's the guy that was the technical guy? Wasn't Bartlett? Kevin Bartlett, yeah, KB. 
there's three guys underneath it in the workshop. She's got a pair of bolt cutters on one of their nuts. And so they must have a pilot. Yeah, put them on there. I'll take a photo. It was $24 for a yearly subscription for Street Machine in 86. Yeah, it was and a, what a great year. I'd, I'd recommend to anyone, especially like some of the younger car guys, do yourself a favour and get onto eBay or Gumtree or whatever it is and chase up some some issues from 1986. I think it. I think it's something that you'll, you know, the, the really crazy, enjoy. The crazy thing about grabbing some back issues from 86 and stuff, two or three years ago, maybe four years ago, uh, when I used to use eBay, I found somebody on eBay to buy a few articles, a few magazines, often they sent them up here, bits and pieces, and I just kind of forgot about it. got a new phone not long ago, three or four months ago, and when it was getting, you know, they port the numbers for you at Telstra, when it was getting ported, one of them was Brett ABE, Street Machine Magazine seller. Oh, right. I, I forgot about that guy. So I sent him a text four years later, uh, you know, mate, you're still selling ABD, ADB magazines. Get, yeah. a te- get a text back 35 seconds later. Yes. <laughs> so I organised to, to buy some more off him. So then I just... Nice. Yeah. But then I think, oh, I wonder if there are a few for sale because they're very cheap to buy. When I get on eBay, it has exploded. Secondhand street machines, I think 40 sellers or 45 sellers. The prices are still good. They're still worth, you know, not, not a great deal of money, but that's one thing that definitely has come. Instead of six or seven buyers that was on there five years ago, there was 45 people selling selling yes. street machines. There's plenty of stuff out there. and There is plenty of fodder for people and, and, and scoop them up and have a good read and you'll know what the hell we're talking about then too. You'll know what we're so passionate about if you really read those magazines and and take them in. Yeah, don't don't buy them. It's because copy. it's because the it's the magazine acts as a journal as well. You can mm. you can put it away and you can get it back out and check how the styles were back then. Fair enough if you've got an electronic one, you can check what's hot now. And you might they might have it back in the day or something. But the magazine acts as a journal of our sport and of our hobby as well. Sure. Do you want exactly right. do you want to talk about something from the '86 magazine? Mate, pretty much. I've pretty much covered all the stuff on that that I want to talk about was just get people to get out there, have a look at cars like Rob Beecham's LX Tirana, have a look at Wayne Pagel's Gas 69 Black HT Monaro, and also, while you're at it, check out Greg Castle's Blonde Silly WB Ute. You can Google these things and they'll come up uh, on the internet. And also, have a bit of a read about HQ for you and also the Terminator, Mick Curran's Terminator Red HQ. Of course, we'll post photos of these on our Instagram Here's, Mate, here's one that I need the... your help with. Just quickly, I'll shoot this one. Need okay. to help with some of the reason for us, or definitely for me, starting this podcast is a very selfish. I get to talk street cars with somebody for for an hour each week. So here's my question: the '86. Something I noticed in April, May '86. Gary Walker was a guy that had a twin turbo V12 Jag, thousand horsepower thing. Do you remember the car? I remember it well, definitely. Yeah, right, I'll so... tell you what we're going to do. We're going to hold that off till the next episode. Done. <laughs> okay. So, look, I guess we've got massively sidetracked today, and that's just half the course. We really don't have much of a set program, but the set program we do have, we really didn't do much on, but that's what I love about talking to you, Red. We just go off on wild tangents. That's what it's all about. So next episode of the Fong Slappers, we're going to start by talking about the Gary Walker Jag V12 Challenge, which I'd forgotten all about, so nice work. So I guess on that note, before we say goodbye, we just need to acknowledge and thank some of the Fong Slapper crew that helped make this happen. Yeah. Lucy and Deb, Jackie and Nick, and of course, Macra and Harry. So thank you very much, folks. The adult Red, supervision. I look, yeah, basically. Redmond, as always, it's a pleasure chatting to you, and I look forward to chatting to you next time. We'll catch up on all the stuff we didn't talk about in 1986 today. We'll catch up with that episode three. Thanks to anybody who downloaded. Cheers. All right, speak to you soon.